0: Well, as we continue this morning to work through the rhythm of grace and our worship here together, I want to draw your attention to page five of your worship journal. I know Ryan mentioned this at the beginning, but last week we began the Christian calendar year. We started a new study. I'll get into that in a second, but we rolled out this new tool, and so one of the things that we want to do is orient you to the new tool, and I want you to see that on page five in the section of Receive His Wisdom, there's a page for you to take notes, And as I said last week, the reason that we put that in there is because we have a God that we believe speaks. That's it. So by His Spirit who lives within His people, by His Spirit who inhabits the praise of His people, and through His Word, which is living and active, it is a dynamic Word. Our God communicates, and He is not having any trouble doing that. With we, his people. And so, you know, we come to him as a creature to our creator. We come to him as a son or daughter to a father. We come to him as a servant to a master. We come as him as a subject to a king. And at this point in our service, we say, Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. And we say that because we realize that we need to be delivered not just from our sin, but from ourselves. That our wisdom isn't working, but that the all wise God who not only wrote this wisdom for us, but who authored this world, has something to say. And when he does, I think it's worth writing down. So that's for you. As we come now to the Word of the Lord with the expectancy that, okay, God is going to speak to us, we're going to return today to this study that we started last week on that first Sunday of Advent, and as I said, last week it's a little bit different from our previous studies in that this study is not contained completely within one book. So we are beginning at the beginning of the Bible, and we're going to jump after Christmas all the way over to the very end of the Bible, and then having done those two things, then we're going to look at the books of First and Second Corinthians together, and we're calling this study Living in the Rhythm of Grace, and if you missed it last week, and you're new, and you don't know what the rhythm of grace is, I'm now going to explain that, but also if you missed it last week and you know what the rhythm of grace is, but what it means to live in it now is your question, I'm going to explain that. The rhythm of grace, simply put, is the pattern of the gospel. That's it. We have just put language to the pattern of the gospel. And so then we here at Rio, in our personal worship and in our corporate worship, when we gather like we're doing now, and then in our community groups, when we come together to talk with one another, to pray with one another, to share with one another what the Lord is saying, because He's a God who speaks to us with one another, and to journey together with one another. Okay, we work through this rhythm, and so we start by remembering God. And that means far more than just remembering that He exists. It means remembering who He is, what He's like what his promises are, what he's done, what he's doing, what he will yet do. It starts with the Lord, and then the next natural gesture of our soul is what? It moves to us. Because here's what happens when we see God for who he is, we all of a sudden see ourselves for who we are, and here's what we see. We see all of our deficiencies. We see all of the things that are unlike God. In fact, what we see is all of the things that we've done in our lives that stand between us and God, and then we realize, and it's traumatic that there's nothing we can do about it, that we can't roll back the pages of the book of our life and kind of undo things. We can't rewind the tape, if you even know what that is at this point, and delete certain aspects of it. I keep using that like people under 30 know what that means. But seriously, we can't go back into our life and take out the magic whiteout and go, pretty sure that God doesn't want to see that, or I don't want Him to. Doesn't work. We're left in a position of helplessness where our only option is to cry out to the God whom we've offended to remove himself at his cost, the offense, and that's exactly what he's done in Jesus. We remember God, and then we're honest with him about ourselves, and then what do we do? We run to the cross, to the grace that God has purchased for us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we go, wow, washed clean. Made new, and more than that, new identity, new name, son or daughter of the king, servant of the great master, redeemed of the wonderful redeemer. It doesn't get any better than that. And then, having done that, again, in recognition of the fact that left to ourselves, we make a mess of things, our wisdom isn't working. The wisdom of the world is not working. We need the wisdom of the one who authored the world. That's the one that works. Just like the physical laws of this world work, the laws that God has created morally too, work. We come to the Lord and say, okay, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Tell me how you would have me to live. And not as a matter of obligation, not as a matter of, well, I guess it's what I have to do next. No, as a matter of joy. I want now to live life for you. And then by His Spirit in community with one another, we go out and do what He says. That's the last gesture. So the rhythm of grace is simply the pattern of the gospel. And living in the rhythm of grace means this. It means so regularly engaging in that pattern through personal worship and corporate worship on Sunday mornings like this and in our community groups and so forth, that it becomes ingrained in us. It becomes the rhythm of our lives. It becomes the rhythm by which we live. It becomes the operating system by which we do see, say, everything that we do see and say. It takes us over. And then the gospel not only saves us, but it makes us as we learn to spin in its rhythm more and more and more and more like Jesus. I gave you some examples last week. But let me add to them. Let's say, for example, that you're facing a temptation, okay? You open your computer, and there it is, and you didn't even have to go look for it. It came to look for you. Ever experienced that? If you have a computer, the answer is yes. What do I do with that? I've got to stop and, and let this rhythm take me over as opposed to my passions. I've got to stop and let this rhythm take me over as opposed to my desires. I've got to stop and let this rhythm take me over as opposed to my addictions. I've got to stop and remember who God is, the only source of satisfaction in the whole of the universe who has made me to be satisfied in Him and who, when I satisfy my him as, myself in Him as opposed to this, I don't make a ruin of my life. I enjoy His pleasure. And indeed, that itself is pleasurable. I need to remember God, I need to be honest with Him about myself and my sin and my weakness and all of my issues, the whole deal. I need to then rest in the assurance of the grace that is mine in Christ and praise Him that His goodness to me is based on, the, on Jesus' performance and not my own, and I need to remember who I am in Him, and then I need to say, speak Lord, for your servant listens, and then do what He says. And what does He say in a moment like that? I don't know, He might come to you and say, hey, you remember that story about Joseph in the Old Testament? Because this is how the Spirit works. You store up His Word in your heart, and then He brings it up and speaks by bringing it up. Potiphar's wife just kept coming on to this young man She arranges a deal where, like, all the servants are out of the house, you know, and she knows he's going to show up. He's faithful Joseph. He shows up at the same time every day. reports for duty, you know. He reports for duty, and she's arranged it so that nobody's there but her and him. And again, she tries to seduce him and grabs his clothes. And what does he do? He leaves his coat behind and runs. Maybe that's what he would say in that moment to you. Hey, man, Run. Walk out of your office and down the hall and call your friend. Tell him to call you again at 5 to make sure that you're good. Pray with him over the phone. Have him call you the next morning. That's the rhythm of grace and living in it. It means taking your finances. I know this is awkward, but it means taking your finances and, and living in the rhythm of grace. What does that mean? It means remembering God with your finances. And so then who is God? He is the God who created you. He gave you life. He gives you breath. He sustains your life. He's given you every ounce of talent that you have. Every ounce of energy you've ever expended is a gift from Him. Every gift, every ability He has granted to you freely and in His grace, and He put you in this nation at this time, in a time, in an era, and in a place in which all of those things that He's given to you would be rewarded with wealth. And he tells you, guess who I am? I am the giver of every good and perfect gift. That includes that. And so then, Lord, i got to remember you in this. And i got to be honest with you about myself. I treat it like it's mine. I take the credit for it. I don't praise you for it. I just think about all my hard work. (laughs) I don't consider you in it. I've got my ego attached to it. I already have my plans for it. And then remember who you are. Rest in his grace. Is forgiveness and in who you are. What's your name? It's son or daughter of the king. And from that, you derive your value. From that, you derive your importance and significance. Not, as we'll talk about in a little while, from what you can produce and manufacture on your own. Lord, speak for your servant. Listen, speak to me about the poor. Speak to me about your mission. Speak to me about timing. Speak to me about all of these things. Talk to me about the addiction of wealth and how it enslaves me to it. And show me how to be free. The rhythm of grace takes over your suffering as well. That's kind of a big one. So in your suffering, what are you doing? You're remembering who the Lord is, that He is the providential God who is on His throne, governing over every single circumstance of the whole of your life, which means, and you just need to own this, that He has ordained whatever the suffering is for you. He's given it to you. You're welcome. Makes you feel great, doesn't it? It should really help, even though it really hurts. Remember who the Lord is. Be honest with him about yourself and your resentments and your anger and your frustrations and about the fact that you wouldn't have chosen this for yourself and about how it is that you do not understand how he's going to work this out for good. But that's what he promises. And in fact, it's what he's doing. And then what? Rest in the assurance that is yours in Jesus. Remember that this God is the God who suffered and died for you. For you. All right, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Give me eyes and a heart that starts to look for the good in this, because by faith, I'm believing it's there. So give me a few glimpses of it. That will be like breath, air to me, to a suffocating person. Show me how it is that I can take whatever this is and I can step up onto it like a stage in in, in the midst of all of these people in my little world who are watching me right now suffer this way and proclaim your goodness in this so much louder than ever I otherwise would be able to do because of this. Show me how to do these things and then empower me by the power of your spirit and brothers and sisters with whom I surround myself to do that, to do what you say. Many of us saw an example of this a couple of months ago with a man who was an elder here at this church forever and ever. His name is Paul Garofalo, and he died a few months back. But it was kind of a slow grind into the grave. And if you've seen that, it's not attractive. It's very difficult. It's very painful. And it required him to spend a lot of time enduring a lot of indignity in ICU. But if you went to see him, here's what you would see. You'd see a guy who would say to you, Hey, you know what I'm doing, man? I'm just, I'm waking up every day and I'm saying, How can I use this to tell these nurses about Jesus? How can I use this to tell these doctors about Jesus? When they take me out of the ICU and they stick me in a regular room with another patient, I'm telling them about Jesus. I want to suffer in such a way as to proclaim the goodness and the greatness. And the joy of my Savior. The day before he died, I think it was, they took a video of him. And he's laying in his bed. He's got like this thing that totally covers over his nose and mouth. It blows air down into his lungs. And his arms are out like this. And he's singing, Behold the Lamb. That's the way to go. Maybe we all go like that. But that's laying hold of your suffering. And processing it in light of who God is, confessing who you are in it, remembering who you are through faith in Jesus, receiving His Word and everything that it says about what your purpose and mission and meaning is, is in this life, and then by the power of His Spirit, despite all of the difficulties doing it. It's amazing. So the rhythm of grace is the pattern of the gospel. That's it. And living in the rhythm of grace means interacting with this pattern so regularly that it overtakes you it just becomes instinctive. It becomes the pattern by which you live. It becomes your operating system for life. And to that end, we began this study that we're calling living in the rhythm of grace. And as I said previously, we begin at the beginning of the Bible. Then after Christmas, we jump to the end. And here's why we're starting at the beginning and end of the Bible, because they come together profoundly to emphatically hold before us who our God is. To show us in no uncertain terms who we are and where it all went wrong. <laughs> to come rushing to the trauma of that, to our aid with the gospel of Christ. And then to give us a wisdom by which we can learn to live in this world for the sake of another world. And it gives us this wisdom, again, as I said, not as a series of suggestions or good advice. Hey, maybe you ought to consider, you know, no, no, no. <laughs> He's a king as a glorious mandate, that is our great privilege by the power of God's Spirit to live out, and in living it out, okay, we live lives that in the end actually matter. So we pick up our study today in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, where we come to the sixth day of Moses' account of the story of creation at the beginning of the Bible. And here's what I want you to see. I'm going to tell you up front. You ready? Number one, I want you to see that you were made—hear that language— You were made for relationship with God. Secondly, I want you to see that you were made to do the work of God. And then thirdly, I want you to see that you were made to enjoy the rest of God. And in fact, you were commanded to rest. I would argue this day every week. A day of rest and a day of worship. And here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to show you those things, but I'm going to move quickly through them. And here's why I'm going to move quickly through them because I think that you already know all these things. And what I really want to get to is why we have trouble doing them. And and here's why, I think because every one of those things takes time. And you and I, if we're honest, are too busy. We're too busy. And so more than anything else, that's where I want to park. That's what I want to talk about. I want to dig in to our busyness. But first, let's jump into the text. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 24, Moses says this. He says, that on the sixth day of creation, that's my add-on, but that's where we're at. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their what? Because it's really important, and you know that because you're now about to hear it like five times, according to their kind's livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth again, according to their kinds. And it was so. And then we read that God made the beasts of the earth, and here it is again, according to their kinds. And the livestock, what? According to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground, oh, good grief, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And so then just to rehearse, all of animal life was made according to its what? Kinds. Kinds. That was good. A plus. Okay. So here's now what you're going to see. Mankind is not made that way. We are profoundly different. We're not animals. Very different. Feel the dignity of humanity in the next statement. Even humanity in its most degraded state. Dignity, value, importance, significance. Then God said, let us make man, how? In our image after what? Our likeness. Which is to say, with capacities that we, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is who I think is having this conversation when they say, let us make man in our image. With capacities that we, the triune God, don't give to any of the other creatures of the earth. We're a facsimile in some sense of the Lord God Himself. Not physically, for sure, but in terms of our capacities And what do those capacities enable us to do that are distinct from the animal world? Well, first of all, they enable us to walk through this life in intimate, loving relationship with the Lord our God. Guys, we were made for relationship with God. But beyond that, too, these capacities enabled us to do the work of God. And we were made to do that, too. And what is the work of God? Because we saw that last week. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. But how does it go? Like, what's the sequence of events? Well, it starts with an earth that is dark and dead and chaotic and completely empty. And then in the space of six days, what does the Lord God do? He introduces light into the darkness, he brings life out of that which is dead. He takes that which is utterly chaotic and crazy and out of control, and he, he borders it, he forms it, he shapes it, he brings it under control. He brings beautiful things out of that which was ugly. And he takes that which is completely empty and fills it. Why? Why does he create like that? Why didn't he just snap his fingers and then it was so? He could have done that. He's telling us something. What is he telling us? He creates a world that is the perfect picture of our hearts apart from His creative and sovereign work by His Spirit through His Word in us. And He tells us from the moment we open the Bible, hey, you know what? If you, if you are dark and light is what you need, that would be me. If you're dead, like there's dead stuff in here and there's dead stuff out here all around you and in your life, if you're looking for the God who brings life out of dead things, I'm the only one who can do that. If it's crazy, if it's chaos, if it needs to be ordered, if it's ugly and it needs to be made beautiful, that's my major. That's what I do. And I can just save you some time. If you're empty, I alone can fill you. He preaches the gospel to us from the first page of the Bible. But then what is the work of God? It is to rule over and to fill this world in such a way as to bring light into darkness as to bring life out of dead things, as to bring order and beauty to that which is otherwise chaotic, disordered, and ugly. It is to fill that which is empty. And so then again we read, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And let them, meaning man, male and female, have dominion, which is a word of rulership over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And remember that when we get to chapter 3. Let him have dominion over the serpent. Well, it doesn't work out that way, does it? But he's supposed to. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them for this mission. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but what else? And subdue it. Rule over it. Rule and fill. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And of course, Adam and Eve were commissioned to do this literally physically. How are we commissioned to do it? Because we even call it the Great Commission. We're commissioned to do it spiritually as you and I learn to live and to walk through life in intimate, loving relationship with our God, following our Savior, And like Him, selflessly laying our lives down, knowing that our life is in Him, to do what? To bring light, to bring life, to bring order and beauty, to bring the fullness of Jesus and the praise of Christ into our homes, into our offices, into our school, into our neighborhood, into our relationships, into our city, into every one of our individual worlds, and collectively, together into the world, places like Haiti and whatnot. It's altogether missional. It's rule and it's fill the world with the peace and with the beauty and with the worship of Christ. So we were made for relationship with God. We were made to do the work of God. But what else? Number three, we were made to enjoy the rest of God. And he rolls that out in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1. So having completed the sixth day of creation, we read this, Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, God's done. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that He had done, and He then rested on the seventh day from all the work that He had done, and not because He was tired, but instead to create for us a mandate, not a suggestion, but a mandate that we follow that example. We're to follow the example of God in doing His work. We're to follow the example of God in doing His rest. Two, he sets aside a day for rest from all of our ordinary labors and for worship and reflection on him. And he makes it holy. It says, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, made it separate, made it different appreciably from every other day. It is not my day and it's not yours. It's God's day. He set it aside as a gift to us, Christ says as a gift to us, that we might rest, that we might be renewed and restored, that we might reflect upon God and worship Him. God blessed the seventh day and He made it holy because on it, God rested from all of His work. It's it's a creation mandate. All of His work that He had done in the creation. And for the last 2,000 years, the overwhelming majority of Christians have celebrated that day of rest and worship on this day, which is not the seventh day I recognize. It is the first day. It's the day of resurrection. We believe the resurrection shifted the day by one. We do this on Sunday. So, to rehearse, you were made for relationship with God. You were made to do the work of God. You were made and even mandated to enjoy the rest of God. But again, what's the problem? The problem isn't that we don't know these things. The problem... Is that we don't have time for these things. The problem is, and I'm talking to me and to you, that we're too busy. Think about that. We're too busy to do, and don't miss this, the things that we were made to do. And that's the sweet spot of life, is it not? Like when you do what you're made to do, now you're living. So why are we too busy? All right, so here's the question I want you to ask yourself, and I've asked myself, believe me. And the question is, what drives my busyness? So I'll work that through and you do the same. What drives my busyness? What drives your busyness? And I'm going to suggest a couple of answers that I think apply to at least most of us. And the first answer that I'm going to suggest is that it is your quest for importance or significance, either in your own eyes or in the eyes of somebody else, your husband or wife, your parents or kids, your siblings, your friends, your coworkers, some coach, some kid who told you 30 years ago that you'd never amount to anything. You're trying to prove that you actually do. You see? Think about that. And sometimes it is by busyness itself that we try to produce our own importance and create our own significance. And sometimes it's by something else like success that we try to produce our own importance and create our own significance. But the end result is the same. We become too busy for God. To do the things that we were made to do, to live the kind of life that in the end doesn't perish with us, but reverberates into eternity. So then if it's busyness, for example, alone by which you're trying to produce your own importance and create your own significance, then the busyness myth that subconsciously drives you like a slave driver through life goes something like this. If I'm really, really busy, then I must be really, really important and significant because just look at all the emails that I get. Look at all the text messages. Look at all my phone. We've been sitting here for 30 minutes. Did you see my phone blowing up and buzzing and dinging and going, you know? Seriously, I mean, look at that. Look at all the meetings on my calendar. Look at all the relationships I'm managing. Look at all the deals right now that I've got going. Look at all the plates in the air. Good grief, how could I not be important and significant? And why is it? Why is it that pretty frequently, far more so than I'd like to admit, I want to take every electronic device I can lay my hands on, by which some human being anywhere on the planet can get a hold of me, throw them all in my swimming pool, and forgive me, get on a plane by myself. I don't even want my wife around, no one. And I want to fly to Canada, and I want to drive via four-wheel drive, and then get on a donkey or something and hike up as far as I possibly can out into the midst of nowhere so I can be alone in a cabin by myself and maybe get some sleep. Why is that? And why is it that I know that even if I did all of those things, I would not sleep? All I would do is be awakened again and again by the crash of the plates that I know are no longer spinning and that they're beginning to fall all over the place. And this deal is now going to be gone. And this is going to be gone. And what is this person going to do? It's just, it's just, it's why, why is that happening? Because those plates don't represent deals. They represent you. Your value, your importance, your significance. Good grief, I didn't just lose the deal. I lost part of myself, not my net, my self-worth. Because that's what I'm trying to suck it out of like marrow from a bone. It'll make you nuts. So then some of us try to produce our own importance and create our own significance by just being really busy. And some of us pursue it in other things, like success. And then we just crazy busy ourselves trying to get the success because the busyness myth that overtakes us, and then subconsciously, you know, you don't think this through, subconsciously drives your life is, well, if I can just become really successful, then I'll be really important and significant. But here's the problem. How do you define success? You see the mountain before you and you hike up that dude, right? And you get all the way to the summit and that's the summit you thought you would have finally achieved importance and significance at because this is success, you know, and you get to the top and all of a sudden you can see all of these other mountains and they're so much bigger. Now it's redefined. Oh, good grief. I got to go up that one. Then you climb that one and then what? Just gives you a better vantage point to see the other mountains that are so much bigger and then you climb that one and then... It's never-ending. It's unrelenting. I mean, it, it doesn't stop. You're never there. So some of us are trying to produce our own importance and create our own significance by busyness, and some are by success. But others, for others, it's a little bit different. For others, it's by pleasing and keeping happy all the right people. And we all know who all the right people are for each one of us. We all have them. Well, if I can keep them happy, if I can please and impress them, then I must be important and significant. So it means if you're a guy or, or even if you're a woman, if in addition to all of the other things that you have on your plate, okay, now, you know, you've got to keep up with your honey-do list. You've got to coach every single one of your kids' teams in all of the different sports that they're involved in, or at the very least, you have to be at every game and every practice and every rehearsal and every recital and every event Or maybe you have to keep the perfect house and cook the perfect turkey and don't mess up your mother-in-law's sweet potato casserole recipe and find the perfect gift for absolutely everything and everyone. And I want to kind of stop and go, you know, there's some wonderful things in there that I just said. It's awesome to be able to do a lot of that. That communicates value and love and appreciation and all kinds of things. Like, I totally get it. And it's good to be able to do as long as that's not where you're trying to derive your value and importance and significance from. And then we have social media. And for some of us, you know, we use it for business. It's like advertising. And I get that. It's a good idea. But for some of us, it's an addiction. And we, I'm just going to say it, sorry, we waste massive amounts of time. And we're so busy, we have no time for God. No, really. Think about that. For many of us, social media is not about, you know, having fun and keeping in track, keeping up with certain people. Social media is about managing our image. It's about presenting to the world a picture of our lives that's more attractive than the actual picture of our lives, isn't it? I mean granted, nobody wants to see the picture of you at Disney when your kid throws up on you and it pours in the rain and you and your husband have, a, you know an argument or your wife or whatever. I, I get that. So I mean there's a certain amount of that where you just kind of go, "Yeah, nobody'd be interested in this Disney trip." But, <laughs> but really, why? What's the mania? Is it that subconsciously, subconsciously? You're deriving your sense of worth and value and importance and significance by how many friends and likes and followers that you get. Is it? I think that's one of the reasons why we keep track of how many friends and likes and followers we get, and not just for ourselves. Here's the telltale sign. It's the day when you go, hey, I wonder how many likes Larry Thompson got on that picture, you know? How many followers does he have? Larry Thompson's the pastor at First Baptist. But, (laughs) and here's what I want to say. I don't know the answer. (laughs) Praise the Lord. But I am tempted to check, so (laughs) he's a wonderful guy. I love that guy. But when you check somebody else's, it says something, doesn't it? So what drives your busyness? Is it your quest for importance or significance? That's option A. Option B is this. It's your quest for security. If you believe that your security and that of your family is on your shoulders, you will never stop. It will never be enough. You will never rest. You'll always be too busy, even for the Lord. So what do we do about these things? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is to embrace the fact that our importance, our significance, our security does not come from our efforts. It doesn't come from all the emails and the text messages and meetings and calendar stuff and deals and things. It doesn't come by how much money we make, how many insurance policies we buy, what a great portfolio we do. It doesn't come from any of those things. It doesn't come from keeping all the right people happy. How tenuous is that? I'm important today, but what if so-and-so gets mad at me? It's hard. It's difficult. It doesn't come from those things, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with social media, social media, the first thing that we need to do is to embrace the fact that our importance, significance and security comes solely from the Lord our God. And it is His gracious gift. He has created us in His image and in His likeness, and therefore by definition, every human being on the planet is important, significant, valuable and as believers. My goodness, the God of the universe, to get rid of our offenses. That we were utterly undeserving, entered into this world on Christmas as one of us, that he might live, suffer, and die to remove every offense between us and be raised again from the dead to offer us eternal life and to bring us willingly, knowingly, into his family as sons and daughters of the king of the universe. There's no more valuable position and no more secure position than that. Now, does that mean that nothing will ever happen to you that you would really like not to happen? No, no, no. But it does mean that your Father is in charge of that whole thing. And through the rhythm of grace, you walk through it with Him, trusting and knowing and believing that out of it somehow, there will be good. So the first thing we need to do is to embrace the fact that our important significance and security comes solely from God. And then the second thing that we need to do is to embrace our own finitude, meaning our own limitations while at the same time embracing God's infinitude, meaning His unlimited abilities and capacities. You know, I think if we've learned anything in the past couple of weeks here in this part of the book of Genesis, it is that we live in a supernatural world. It was supernaturally created. It is supernaturally sustained. And hey, here's the thing. Not by me and not by you, but by the Lord. Which means that there's a God factor to my life and to your life that we all need to begin to reckon with. And here's what that ought to do, practically speaking, for us. It ought to allow us to find 20 to 30 minutes a day to work through the rhythm of grace and personal worship with the Lord. Shouldn't it? I mean, it just should. It should allow us to give ourselves to the real mission of our life. And the awesome thing about it is you don't have to quit your job or quit school or do anything to do this. Wherever you are, there it is. Which is what? Bring light into that place. Bring life into that place. Bring order. Work toward beauty and form. Make it your goal to raise up a worshiping community in your little world to the Lord Christ. And it should enable us to set aside this day each week for rest and for worship. Because here's what rest is. Rest is an opportunity to trust God's work on your behalf more than your work on your behalf. I love that. I didn't come up with that stole it. I love it. Rest is an opportunity to trust God's work on your behalf more than your work on your behalf. So a couple of years ago, uh, after Dr. Dave Ingram, um, who was an associate pastor here for 19 years, died and went to heaven, it was kind of an intense time, as you might imagine, for a lot of us and helping get all of that together and so forth. One of you came up to Dede Lamanick, Matt's wife, and said, hey, you know, how are you and the Hendrixes doing? And, uh, and then she was honest with you. And then you did something amazing. You booked us for three days and two nights at this crazy, awesome resort in Palm Bay, Florida. I didn't even know there was a place called Palm Bay, Florida, but it was amazing. And I said to Matt, I said, look, you know, <laughs> I said, look, we're going to leave tomorrow, you know, and he was going to drive. We're going to ride up together in the van. I said, okay, so here's the deal. Let's make a pact. We're going to take our phone, and we'll probably make a few phone calls leaving town, but as we're leaving Fort Lauderdale, we're going to put it on airplane mode, and then we're not going to change that until we enter back into Fort Lauderdale. I don't know if you've ever seen or heard his phone. It's amazing that thing makes it a day. It just wouldn't buzz to just freak out. I mean, these things are really strong. He said, all right, let's do it. So we told our kids, if you need us, get a hold of us through mom. You know, we told Ken here at the church, if there's an emergency, contact us through Beth or Dee Dee. And we put our phones in airplane mode and left town and then came back three days later. And the most awesome thing happened the, the, day, the next day, both days we were there, the most awesome thing happened. Um, it's cool. The sun rose. <laughs> Who knew? It came right up out of the horizon. It raced across the sky. It set. I'm like, not going to lie, I was freaking out a little bit. Then it did it again the next day. None of us are as indispensable as we think we are. What is rest? It's an opportunity To trust God's work on your behalf more than your work on your behalf. Believe me, the Lord knows what's on your plate. And He is not as limited as you and I in getting things done. It's just a matter of trusting Him to do it. So final time, you were made for relationship with God. You were made to do the work of God. You were made to enjoy the rest of God and commanded to do it for your good. Your good. But at least most of us are too busy. So what drives your busyness? Because whatever it is, if you're a believer in Jesus, God has that covered. And that should enable you to commit to rest and engage in worship on Sundays. Will you do that now that it's the beginning of a new year, church calendar wise? And not only that, but get here early. Now that's weird, right? just violates all of our mores in South Florida. What? It's ridiculous. It will bless your soul if you will do it. I understand you're not going to be able to do it every week, you know, or really, like, you'll figure it all out. Everything's perfect, and then your son or daughter will throw up on you as you're putting them in the car, and then you're late. I got it. It happens, okay? But let me gently prod you a bit. You make it to doctor's appointments on time. You make it to school on time, usually anyway, don't you? More often than not. It's just a matter of working it through, man. Get here early. Get the crazies where they need to go on campus. Sit down. Do many deep breathing exercises. Take hold of your worship journal each week. Take a look at it in advance of the service. Pray, prepare your heart. It's all doable. There's room there. It should allow you to commit to personal worship, will you do that this year? See, when you get to page 7, I don't know if you've noticed this, but that's the page you turn to on Monday morning, and it gives you the passage of Scripture there at the bottom that we're going to look at together next Sunday. So that's what I'll be preaching on next Sunday, God willing. Gives you insights on the passage of Scripture. Tells you about tools and whatnot. Teaches you how to get started. Then you flip over and you've got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And we've tweaked it a bit and every day has a different emphasis. So Monday, general observations about the passage. Write those things down. Tuesday, did any questions come up as you read? Write those things down. Wednesday, seek out answers to your questions. We actually have an online forum. You can send us your questions and a whole group of us get them and eventually one of us responds. Personalize it on Thursday. Apply it on Friday. See how it works? But here are the questions you've got to answer if you're going to be serious about it. When are you going to do this? Because I'm going to get to it. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Where are you going to do this? When and where? And lastly, commit to becoming God's agents of light. Recognize that that's your job at your job. That's your role at your school. Wherever you go, that's what you're to do. Light, life, order, and the worship of the Lord. Fill your world this year, with more worshipers of Christ. Fill it with the gospel, with the mercies and message of Jesus. Okay? And commit to that too. So commit to Sundays, commit to personal worship, and commit to making the mission of the Lord, what you were made to do, your mission this year. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we do thank you that we were your mission. And though we are utterly and completely and thoroughly undeserving, and we see that when we come into your presence, though we have done much to spoil our relationship with you, you have done even more to remove all of our spoil, to fix what we have broken, to heal what we have damaged. And God, you have done this and offered it to us fully and completely. In the person and work of your Son, let us rest in your grace. Let us rejoice, Lord, and give ourselves over to you. Let us confess in humble awe and adoration that you, O God, are our creator, our father, our master, our king, our redeemer. And Lord, not only have you rescued us from our sin, but you offer to rescue us from ourselves as we take up your wisdom Store it deep into our heart and by the power of the spirit that you give us. So you make us able to walk with you in intimate, loving relationship, bringing your light and your life and your order and your fullness into each one of our little worlds. Lord, let us commit to what we were made for and let us do that for your glory and for the satisfaction of this, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen.